Midsummer Night's Dream is a weird, weird, weird play. It's a play that's filled with magic and it's got literal magic and it's quite a magic play, I think, you know, in, in, the, in the sense that it's fabulous. What I find compelling about this play is it's a mixture of it, its very great beauty, lyrically and visually, um, with also its unsentimental side. It's a mixture of beautiful, lyrical, absolutely gorgeous, astonishing bits of verse with really low-down comic jokes about, for instance, bums. It's also a weird mixture of um, discussion of what love is with the fact of what lust is. So it's about love and lust and the war between the sexes. My name is Tiffany Stern, um, and I'm a professor of Shakespeare and early modern drama at the Shakespeare Institute in Stratford-on-Avon, which is Shakespeare's own hometown. Welcome to Shakespeare for All. In this course, we're speaking with Professor Stern about A Midsummer Night's Dream. Written in the mid-1590s, this romantic comedy crosses between contrary worlds, human and non-human, city and forest, waking and sleeping, reality and dream. In the court of Athens, a young noblewoman named Hermia is in love with Lysander, but she is ordered to marry Demetrius instead, the one-time lover of her friend Helena. Hermia and Lysander flee to the woods, pursued by Demetrius and Helena, and they encounter a dreamlike world of fairies, magic and danger. The play ends like a conventional comedy with a series of marriages. But the comic marriages are celebrated with a performance of a tragic play, another one of the play's odd oppositions. For a really funny comedy, and it very much is, it's got tragedy very much to the fore. It, it ends on a play in a play which has a tragic ending, and then it itself has a comic ending, but you're kind of, oh, it's ended simultaneously happy and sad. So I, I like the fact that it's contradictory. That gives me a lot to think about, and it'll give you a lot to think about. The play opens with Theseus, Duke of Athens. He has just defeated Hippolyta, warrior queen of the Amazons, and brought her back to Athens as a captive, but also as his prospective bride. There is Theseus about to get married, but he says, um, uh, I, I wooed thee with my sword and won thy love doing thee injuries, which is horrific. <laughs> If Hippolyta is distressed at having to marry her captor, Theseus, she finds a counterpart in Hermia, who enters with Demetrius, Lysander and her father, Aegeus. Hermia loves Lysander, but Aegeus wants Hermia to marry Demetrius and, by Athenian law, she must marry the man her father chooses or risk the penalty of death. Lysander protests that he should be allowed to marry Hermia, for he is just as eligible and well-derived as Demetrius. And indeed, the play emphasises the men's similarity more than their differences. So the way he presents it, Demetrius and Lysander, you can barely tell the difference. They're not fleshed out enough as characters to, to be uh, remarkably unique. So you indeed can't tell why love one rather than the other. And the point is very powerfully made in the play. 
I am my lord as well derived as he as well possessed. So the guys even say, look, I'm I'm completely interchangeable. The play is very interested in this question of whether partners can be interchangeable or why you might love one person and not love someone similar. We learn that Demetrius has already changed one woman for another. He used to love Hermia's friend Helena, but he has since switched his love to Hermia. For Hermia, however, there is no switching. However similar the two men look, Demetrius is the man she scorns and Lysander is the man she loves. Unfortunately, Theseus decrees that Hermia must marry Demetrius. Lysander and Hermia plot to escape and be married outside Athens. Then Helena enters. She still loves Demetrius and his new love for Hermia causes her agony. Hermia reveals that she and Lysander are running away. Helena, hoping to win Demetrius's favour, resolves to tell him Hermia's plan. After the Athenian nobles, we meet another set of characters, a group of labourers referred to as the Rude Mechanicals. They are rehearsing a play to perform at Theseus's wedding. The Rude Mechanicals, who are the Athenian uh, tradesmen, put on a funny play. They think it's a tragic play, but it's actually very, very funny. And they are nice. And in fact, they are the nicest people in the play. The most lovable, they're silly. They're also good friends. The play's somewhat mixed up title is The Most Lamentable Comedy and Most Cruel Death of Pyramus and Thisbe. The Pyramus and Thisbe play reflects the eclectic way that Shakespeare blended different kinds of sources to create the larger play. Midsummer Night's Dream fuses so many stories from completely uh, different bits. Plutarch's parallel lives, and he writes about Theseus. Pyramus and Thisbe comes from inside of its metamorphosis. Um, uh, Oberon, the name of the king of fairies, comes from the book of Duke Huon of Bordeaux. That's partly that he's playing around with sources, but partly that's the perversity of Shakespeare, that he's interested in what if and then twisting things. Ovid's Latin epic The Metamorphoses, a work of high cultural status, is given a comic twist by the rude mechanicals, especially by Nick Bottom, who is cast as the hero Pyramus, but who enthusiastically offers to play every other role as well. The amateur actors plan to meet in the woods, where, Bottom says, we may rehearse most obscenely and courageously. We then meet a third group of characters. Two figures enter and one says to the other, you are that shrewd and knavish sprite called Robin Goodfellow. These are the fairies. When we think about fairies these days, we're often thinking in a post-Peter Pan type of way. We're thinking of Tinkerbell, lovely, cute, little winged fairies. And and our, our idea is part Peter Pan and it's partly Victorians and kind of drapey gossamer dresses and, and, and lovely angel-like wings. Now, for the Elizabethans, it was different. Robin Goodfellow, um, also called Puck, um, uh, was 
very, very, very mischievous, did naughty things around the house. But there's a kind of a level of sexuality to fairies, which is also very clear in the play. Because we've rather Victorianized and aggrandized our sense of the play, um, sometimes we miss out quite how deeply, perversely, uh, not, not just sexual, but, um, um, but oddly sexual uh, the play is. It's a little dark, <laughs> you know, and, and that's there. The, the darkness of fairies is there. That darkness is particularly reflected in the strife and sexual jealousy between the fairy queen Titania and the fairy king Oberon. They are competing over a young Indian boy whose deceased mother was Titania's dear friend. Titania also accuses Oberon of wanting Hippolyta's love, while Oberon declares, I know thy love to Theseus. These romantic entanglements bring out the parallels between Oberon, ruler of the fairy world, and Theseus, ruler of the human world. And there's some suggestion that Theseus and Oberon, who are never on stage at the same time and who who holds the same important, powerful position, there's some suggestion that they doubled one another. That is, Theseus and Oberon may have been played by the same actor. If the roles were doubled this way, the parallels between them would have been even more noticeable, like the fact that both are abusive towards their female partners, Hippolyta and Titania. One can also parallel Hippolyta um, with Titania, Queen of the Fairies. Uh, Again, if, if you're doubling the guys, you're probably doubling the girls. So we have these strange parallels. We've got these different worlds reflecting on one another. The fairy ruler's strife ripples out into the natural world. The crops rot, contagious fogs descend, and rheumatic diseases spread. But Oberon will not reconcile with Titania while she withholds the Indian boy. Vowing to torment her, he tells Robin Goodfellow, also called Puck, to fetch him a magical flower called Love in Idleness. This flower's juice, if applied to someone's eyes, will make them fall in love with the next creature they see, even if it's a monster. Demetrius and Helena enter the forest. He's pursuing Hermia. Helena is pursuing him. Oberon tells Puck to apply the flower's juice to Demetrius so he will fall in love with Helena instead. Oberon, meanwhile, sneaks up on the sleeping Titania, applies the juice to her, and chants a spell with the particular rhyme and rhythm that is used in the play to indicate magic. What thou seest when thou dost wake, do it for thy true love take, love and languish for his sake, be it ounce, or cat, or bear, pard or boar with bristled hair, In thy eye that shall appear when thou wakest, it is thy dear. Wake when some vile thing is near. Now Lysander and Hermia enter, lost and tired, and decide to sleep that night in the woods. Puck comes upon them and, mistaking Lysander for Demetrius, applies the flower's juice to his eyes. And so... When Helena stumbles in and wakes him, Lysander falls instantly in love with her. Helena, alarmed, runs away and Lysander pursues her. 
Hermia wakes up to find herself alone. Meanwhile, the rude mechanicals rehearse their play in the forest. Puck comes across them and uses magic to turn Bottom's head into that of a donkey or an ass. Seeing the transformation, the mechanicals flee in terror. Titania wakes up, sees Bottom and declares, I love thee. She summons the half-man, half-donkey to her bower. Puck and Oberon are delighted with their plot. But then Demetrius enters with Hermia now following him, pleading to know where Lysander is. Oberon realises that Puck has made a mistake and applied the flower's juice to the wrong man. Puck is excited to watch the romantic mix-ups play out. Shall we their fond pageant see? Lord, what fools these mortals be, he says. But Oberon tells Puck to fix his mistake and put the flower's juice on Demetrius's eyes. So when Demetrius sees Helena enter with Lysander, he also falls in love with her. Now, instead of both competing for Hermia, Lysander and Demetrius are both competing for Helena. Hermia, meanwhile, is stunned when Lysander says he now hates her and loves Helena instead. The men, the second they don't, for flower juice magic reasons, love the woman they hitherto loved, they hate her. For them, not being in love is being in hate, which says something very bleak about their love. And I think that's one of the things that makes the male power so so sinister is, is that men seem to have, in this play, the two emotions of love and hate. Helena is stunned too. She thinks both men are just pretending to love her, to make fun of her, and that her friend Hermia is in on the joke. She chastises Hermia for forgetting their ancient love. Hermia, however thinks that Helena is the one who has betrayed their friendship by seducing Lysander. The two women almost come to blows, as do the two men. It gets flavoured with male viciousness, um, uh, female anger and, and male murderousness. Demetrius and Lysander go to fight each other for Helena, and Helena flees from the furious Hermia. Oberon orders Puck to go after the bewildered lovers, take off the flower's magic from Lysander's eyes and match all four of them in their proper pairs again so that when they wake, everything that happened shall seem a dream. He, meanwhile, sets off to find Titania. We next see Titania in her bower, amorously stroking the ass-headed bottom, crying... Oh, how I love thee, how I dote on thee. The sight of Titania in this foolish, semi-bestial infatuation moves Oberon to pity her, especially since she relented and gave him the Indian boy after he taunted her for loving Bottom. Now, he says, I will undo this hateful imperfection of her eyes. Titania awakes, exclaiming, my Oberon, what visions have I seen? Methought I was enamoured of an ass. And then she sees the ass beside her. Oberon tells Puck to return the sleeping bottom to his normal shape and invites Titania to join him at Theseus's wedding feast. 
Nearby, Theseus, Hippolyta and Aegeus come across the sleeping Lysander, Hermia, Demetrius and Helena. Theseus asks how these bitter rivals came to be sleeping so peacefully side by side. Demetrius explains that he had been pursuing Hermia, but that he now loves Helena again. Theseus gives Hermia permission to marry Lysander and Demetrius to marry Helena that very day when he marries Hippolyta. The four lovers wonder what has happened. Are you sure that we are awake? asks Demetrius. It seems to me that yet we sleep, we dream. They can't work out if they've been asleep or not. They can't work out what has really happened and what what hasn't. Nearby, another character also ponders what has happened in his dream. The hilarious Bottom, who has been an ass, now wakes up from what he thinks was a dream. But we realise it it happened, which is that he made love to uh, Titania, Queen of the Fairies, while half half a man and half an ass. And he says, what an extraordinary dream I had. Bottom then hurries to find the other mechanicals so that they can present their play at Theseus's wedding. At the wedding, Theseus and Hippolyta muse over the lover's strange story. Theseus doesn't believe the kind of fantastic tales that come from what he calls the lunatic, the lover and the poet. He speaks eloquently of how imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown and how The poet's pen turns them to shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. But for Theseus, these imaginings are nothing more than a kind of frenzied madness. We are asked to compare uh, madmen, lovers and poets. We're told that they sort of, that they kind of see and mulch things into a frenzy. The comparison is wonderful and terrible. The rude mechanicals now present what they call a tedious brief scene of young Pyramus and his love Thisbe, very tragical mirth. The plot goes like this. Pyramus and Thisbe are lovers who plan to meet secretly, just as Hermia and Lysander did. Their plan goes awry and Pyramus, thinking Thisbe is dead, kills himself. When Thisbe finds his body, she kills herself too. The story inserts a tragic note into the play's celebratory comic ending. The actual performance, however, mainly inspires laughter and perhaps some generous applause. When the play ends, the couples dance and depart to enjoy their wedding nights. Puck, Oberon and Titania arrive to bless the marriage beds. Puck delivers the epilogue to the audience, inviting them to applaud the play and we're invited to consider just what about Shakespeare's work makes us applaud so much. One reason to to go to see it is is that you will enjoy it, you'll have fun. But also I think I think he's he's richly philosophical in a weird and interesting way. Uh, he doesn't tell you what the rules are, he questions what the rules are. A Midsummer Night's Dream may be a comedy, but its zany plot raises serious philosophical questions about why we fall in love and what a good foundation for love should be. We'll dive deeper into those questions in episode two. 